Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So have you ever heard the phrase, missing the forest for the trees? It's this phrase that says, you're so into the details that you're looking at that you forget and don't see the big picture. I had a friend in seminary who uh, spent some time before he was in seminary in Seoul, Korea. Or no, he was in South Korea. And he went to visit Seoul one day. And there was a, uh, a Mexican restaurant in Seoul. He hadn't had Mexican food for uh, about a year. And he was really craving some nachos. So he goes in there and he sees, thank God there's a picture of nachos that they're serving here, Korean Mexican nachos in Korea. And he, he orders the nachos, he, I want that, and, and they gave it to him, and, and the nachos looked exactly like that picture. And, and he was really excited to eat it until he did. He, he took <laughs> He took a bite of the nachos and had to spit it out. And the reason why, and what he figured, is that the the people there, well-meaning, wanted to provide some good Mexican food for the people of Korea, um, had looked at the picture and had, at best they could, looked at all the details of what was on those corn chips and did their best. When he looked further at what they had put on the nachos, it was corn chips, they got that right. But um, instead of nacho cheese, they found another condiment that's yellow. It was mustard. <laughs> and you know those jalapenos that you'll often have, the chunks of jalapenos that you'll have on the, on the, the nachos? Um, it was pickle relish. <laughs> and then the sour cream. You probably know where this is going. It wasn't sour cream. It was mayo. Mayonnaise. These well-meaning people paid so much attention to what it looked like and all the details of what could these condiments be, they guessed and uh, they didn't get the big picture of the big question of any time you go to a restaurant. The question is, is it edible? <laughs> it wasn't. They made it look like the picture, but it wasn't edible. And I think that when we come to topics like we do today, scripture passages like we do today, Mark 13, if you want to open there, it's very easy for us to miss the forest for the trees. We can get our minds so locked into certain details of what is said that we miss the big picture of what the prophet is saying. In today's message, the prophet is Jesus himself. Some of the things in this passage are kind of straightforward and chronological. Other things in the passage are stated as happening already but haven't reached their full culmination. So this idea in prophecy of already but not yet, this is a real thing where a prophet will say this has happened, but it's actually happening. And even more things that uh, this prophetic passage teaches us are just plain unclear. And so when we come to a passage like today, it behooves us to be as humble as we can. We, we can't claim and say, I know exactly what this means. If anyone comes to this passage and says to you, I know exactly what this passage means, I think I would take what they say with a little bit of a grain of salt. Now, I'm going to do my best today, but I would ask you to do this. I want you to take what I say with a little grain of salt or maybe a lot of grain of salt. 
because I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think it says and what I think it means. But I'm going to tell you right now, I was telling Matt uh, beforehand, I, I, I was tempted just to get up and say, I have no idea what this means. Does anyone have any ideas? And have like a question and answer session because it's just that complicated. Some of the details are that complicated, but the main point is not complicated at all, and we'll get to that. Uh, this passage is so crystal clear that theologians have been arguing about it for like 2,000 years, and no one's landed anywhere exactly to be able to say, this is exactly what this means. And I'm going to tell you this right up front. I think that might be intentional. I think Jesus' words and Mark, how he writes Jesus' words, it might be very intentional that on some of the details of what's happening in the future... They don't want us to exactly know because it wouldn't be good for us. That's what I think. But we're going to jump in here, chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to pick up where kind of Matt left off last week. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, let's go. And as he came out of the temple, Jesus, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the subject matter that they're talking about right now is the temple being destroyed. This temple, this great temple being destroyed and not one stone staying on top of the other. The disciples were totally impressed with these buildings. But Jesus' answer was like, yeah, it's all coming down. You may be impressed, but this is short for this world. It will not be here long. And the disciples, to them, this was shocking. Because for them, the temple was the center of all their worship. It was also the, the, the center of their culture in Israel. To say that's coming down is like saying the end of the world is here. And they were shocked. And so in verse 3, we pick up, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so the Mount of Olives is just opposite across the ravine from the temple compound. And you can see the temple compound from there. Today, an Islamic mosque sits there, but some of the original retaining walls are still there. But on the Mount of Olives, sitting opposite to the temple, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So the disciples want to know two things. When will the temple be destroyed? This is specifically what they're asking. They're not asking about the end times. They're asking, when will this temple that you said is going to be destroyed, when will it be destroyed? And what are the signs that are going to kind of come before it that give us a little bit of a hint that it's coming? And then for an entire chapter, Jesus answers these questions, but rather cryptically. He doesn't give very straightforward answers. But Jesus also, besides answering these specific questions that they asked of when and how will we know, besides answering those questions, he answers a question they didn't ask but they should have. He answers the questions of who should we be becoming? Knowing this is going to happen, what should we be doing? What should we be about? Now, we'll get on to that layer of this passage, the who should we be coming and what should we be doing. We'll get that at the end because that's the most important answer, is not when will all these things happen prophetically, but who are we to become through it. We'll get to that at the end. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, my view right up front, after studying and studying, going back and forth and reading commentaries and going into the original languages and all this work I've done on this, this has probably been the hardest study I've ever had to do, just to come up and say, I don't know what it means. Uh, where I'm landing on this um, is almost everything Jesus predicts in this passage has already happened. Almost everything. Now, for those of you who have read ahead, don't freak out. Travis is a heretic. Run him out of the stage. No, 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 no. Almost everything has happened or is happening. And some of it has not yet happened. It was a future prophecy for the disciples, but for us, a lot of this is past. That's how I view this. Where I land on this is not the way that everyone sees it. I'll just be honest right up front. Um, what I believe this passage says agrees with some really brilliant, faithful Christian scholars, and it disagrees with some very brilliant, faithful Christian scholars. That being said, not that you need the permission, but please feel very free to disagree with what I say. Um, and where I land on this, I will come right out and say that there are problems with my view. I might even point out a couple. And with every view on this, there are problems. Any way you land on what you think this means, there are Bible study issues, what you'd call an exegetical problem. So anywhere someone lands on this, there's going to be some issues. But if you do disagree, please do so having wrestled with the actual text of Scripture, this actual text, not just say, I was always taught or the Left Behind series told me. <laughs> Entertaining books. Not necessarily where you want to go for your theology, okay? We can interpret this kind of passage differently and still be family and on the same page. And after all, the main point of this text is not the specifics of the prophecies. It's Jesus' unquestioned call to discipleship. This is not about the future as much as it's about discipleship and us being disciples that will lay it all down for the sake of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, that's an interesting first thing for Jesus to say. They ask him about what's going to happen. How are these things that you prophesy going to roll out? And the very first thing he does about prophecy is warn them to not be led astray. This should be a huge red flag to us when we see prophecy being spoken about or people giving prophecies, new prophecies today, when we hear things are coming down the pike or when we hear this is fulfilling prophecy, what are Jesus' first words to us? See that no one leads you astray. Be very careful when it comes to prophecy. Because, verse 6, many will come in my name, Jesus' name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. What did Jesus just say? The end is not yet. Listen to his words. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the, what? Beginning beginning of birth pains. So Jesus tells his disciples about all these events that will take place. They've asked, when's this going to happen? The temple, when's it going to be torn down? And how will we know it's happening? And he, and he gives them all these signs. But then he says, but that's not it. 
That's not the end. This isn't what you're looking for. So why in the world would Jesus answer their question with answers that aren't the answer to their question? Because they had very well-meaning prophecy junkies back in the first century too. Just like now, there were plenty of people who would see events like earthquakes and famines and wars and pandemics and people claiming to be the real Messiah as signs that something momentous is about to happen, that the world is about to end. People would see all these signs and say, oh, there's an earthquake, this must mean the end, or oh, there's a famine, or oh, I hear a war is coming, it must be the end. Have you ever heard that today? Did you ever hear talk about the pandemic meaning the end of the world? Did you? I did. Jesus is protecting his disciples by calling out all of the false alarms that false teachers, false leaders that existed in their culture would teach. He's saying history is going to run its course. These things you're going to see are going to be on the same playlist repeat over and over and over again. And it's going to be like birth pains. Now, the followers of Jesus are not to be distracted anxious, or jump to hasty conclusions about these kinds of things. We ought to be the most even-keeled people on the planet because no matter what's going on, we have work to do. So when you see these upsetting things happen in our world, realize that Jesus warned you ahead of time that these are false alarms. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. He says these are not the signs of the end. Not, say it with me, not the signs of the end. Don't be fooled. Stay on your guard. Don't let yourself be led astray. Because we have work to do. We have work to do. The mission of Jesus is our calling. But just to summarize... Here are the not yet false alarms that Jesus talked about. Number one, false Christs. Number two, wars and rumors of wars. And number three, earthquakes and famines. These do not signal the end. They signal the beginning, like the first of many contractions in a long process of childbirth. I happen to have some experience with this. Not child, I mean, not... Not me having childbirth, but being there while it happened. Some would say I had the harder job. <laughs> they would be idiots. <laughs> I've seen this happen six times. And I, I feel, I mean, I'm going to talk, and there's so many people in the room who are like, yeah, I know. I know how this works, Travis. But with, <laughs> with contractions... You know, you, you start have, I watched Charlotte with all these six girls, and you know, she'd have some contractions, and, and, and they would be, you know, oh, that hurt, but then they'd be spaced out, and then they would get, as the time grew near, what, they'd get more intense and closer together, right? And I wonder if that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I wonder if that's what Jesus is saying. That just like contractions in childbirth, these kinds of things that we're going to see on the earth are going to be growing regularity and growing in regularity and growing with intensity. We might see these things 
happen more often and grow with intensity, but they're not the signs necessarily that the end is coming. It's just something that happens throughout history. And we need to be aware not to get distracted when they happen. Now, Jesus kind of turns a corner here and starts talking about what's going to happen in the meantime. He says to the disciples, but be on your guard. He's speaking to his disciples. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Does any of this sound familiar to you if you've read the book of Acts? My goodness, this is exactly what happened. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That word is ethne, Gentiles, nations, all people groups, all ethnicities must hear this gospel being preached. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus now describes this in-between time between them asking the question and the temple being destroyed, what's going to happen in between time? Well, he makes it pretty clear. In the meantime, my disciples are going to be intensely persecuted, intensely persecuted. The second thing, my disciples, because of the persecution and through the persecution, are going to be a witness before the rulers of this world. They're going to stand before governors and kings, and they did. This prophecy was fulfilled. The apostles stood before governors and rulers and kings. And third, Jesus says that the gospel goes global. During this time, it doesn't just stay in Israel where he had been teaching them and where they had been spreading the good news of the kingdom. During this time, the gospel goes outward to the other nations of the world. And it did. The sense given here is that the good news that was given to the Jews in Israel is now pointed outwards. It's now also good news for the Gentiles, which is probably most of us sitting in this room. This is good news. And four, the gospel is going to divide the strongest of bonds, even families. The big picture of this section, friends, is he saying, you, my disciples, must expect in the near future to endure hardship from every angle and on an international scale for the sake of spreading the good news about me. And though that was directed at his disciples, I think we can take a page out of this book and know that if we truly are wanting to honor Jesus, there will be difficulty. Do not expect to be a Christian and have the easiest life you could imagine. It's not what you signed up for. You didn't sign up for comfort. You signed up for discipleship. Now, this is where it starts getting a little funky with the prophecy stuff. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where, and I put here it, not he, because most translations do. The ESV that we're reading out of says he. Um, I, I do think, um, like, and there's several scholars that would agree that it is a better pronoun there. Either way, though, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, 
Let the reader understand. Pay attention. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop, now they had these roofs where they would hang out when it was hot um, in the middle of the day or, or in the evening time, it was a cooler place to be. Let the one who is on the roof, on the housetop, not go down, not, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So Jesus now starts prophesying about the end of the temple, when it's about to happen that this temple will be destroyed. The first thing he mentions is this phrase, the abomination of desolation, that the temple is going to be destroyed and occupied by an army in its, in its place. This term, abomination of desolation, is a term borrowed from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. See, in Daniel, this abomination is shown to be an invading force, an army that takes up residence in the temple compound. And in fact, in Luke's version of these exact same words of Jesus, in Luke 21, 20, he very literally describes this abomination as armies invading Jerusalem. So this isn't necessarily a really ethereal, ooh, what does this mean? It's pretty clear, I think, what it means. Again, with humility, I think it's what this means. I don't know. That it, he's talking about the abomination that causes desolation being an army that comes in and inhabits the temple compound. Now, the prophecy of Daniel had already happened in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus on top of the temple altar. Most theologians believe that, that Daniel's prophecy about an abomination of desolation happened in 167 BC before Jesus ever said this. But now it seems that Jesus is saying something like that, that we've seen before, that Daniel talked about, is going to happen again on repeat. It will happen again before the destruction of the temple. And we know that the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. It's a very well-documented historical event. So about 40 years after Jesus said these words, the temple was actually destroyed brick by brick. And so an abomination is something that causes horror. And in the Old Testament, it's connected with idolatry. Desolation, that word, is the idea of something being deserted by those who belong there. Desolation, it becomes desolate. It's empty of that which should be there. So you put this together, and Jesus is envisioning a vile, horrible, idolatrous force displacing the people of Israel and their temple and standing in its place. And he says, when you see this horrible, these horrible military forces coming to take up residence in Jerusalem and at the temple, get out of Dodge. Don't stop and get stuff out of your house. Don't go back from the field and get your cloak. I sure hope it's not, hey, pregnant women, it's going to be hard for you. Pray that it's not in winter because you need to not hesitate for one minute and pray that the conditions for escape are as good as possible. These are actual escape instructions Jesus is giving his disciples and those who would learn from his disciples. Because this thing would happen. 
within a matter of decades. And he talks about a horrible tribulation, one that hadn't ever been seen before. And he says, get out of Judea. That's the area where Jerusalem is in. It's an it's a area in southern Israel where Jerusalem is right there. He says, right before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, well, right before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to the city for five months. They surrounded it and trapped people in there for five months. And it was a time of horrible misery for the people in that area. You know that in that moment, uh, historians, some historians say that 1.1 million Jews died during that siege. And in a final act of military might, the army of Rome destroyed the temple, even digging up the stones that were set below ground. And so no stone was left on another, and the city of Jerusalem and its temple were emptied out, left desolate. And in the place where the temple once stood, the Roman army set up a garrison and did their idol worship there and set up, set up their idolatrous Roman standards that were all about worship of the emperor and worship of gods. This happened. And Jesus, of course, warns that during this time, there's going to be more false Christs. Anytime there's a power vacuum, there's going to be people who try to seize the opportunity and say, I'm your leader. I'm the promised one. I'll lead you to victory. And then he says in verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, I believe we need to read the words about the sun and the moon darkening and the stars falling from heaven in, a cultural, in the cultural poetic way that they were used in the Old Testament prophets that Jesus is echoing here. Jesus is echoing words that have already been heard. And I think we need to take those not necessarily in the literal sense of that. You're going to see the sun necessarily black out and the moon black out and stars falling from the sky. But read the prophets that are talking in this way and see what they actually mean. This is not meant to be taken literally. It's poetic metaphors borrowed from the Old Testament. If you read Isaiah 13, the same words are used to poetically describe the actual downfall of Babylon. Isaiah was not saying that the sun and the moon and the stars would actually stop shining. Rather, he's poetically referring to the lights in the sky that systematically and predictably govern day and night. This predictable governing of everything are going to change. And in the same way that you could hardly imagine a change up in the sun or the moon and the stars that govern the heavens, so will there be the shocking nature of how Babylon will go from being the most powerful governing empire on the planet to being conquered and being a has-been. He's saying by using poetic language, there's going to be a major change-up in the power structure of the earth. And Jesus is using this poetic imagery now to say that there is a major shift in power about to happen. That's what Isaiah meant. That's what Jesus is meaning. He also then says that the powers in heaven will be shaken. Now, what does he mean by that? What powers in heaven? What is he talking about? You know, in, in Jesus' day, the powers in heaven, that was a way to refer to the fallen spiritual beings who were ruling over the nations. These fallen spiritual beings 
who rebelled against God had actual authority and influence over nations. This was the worldview Jesus had. This was the worldview of the Old Testament writers. This is the worldview of the New Testament writers. You know, one thing that kind of reminds me of this kind of thing is in Daniel 10, there's this angelic messenger that comes to Daniel, right? And he says, look, I came to you as soon as you started praying, but the prince of Persia resisted me for so and so many days. That's not an actual prince. It's an, a spiritual being that resisted the, the angel sent to Daniel. You see, the biblical worldview is deeply supernatural. We try to explain everything with science, don't we? And if it doesn't have a scientific explanation, we just shrug our shoulders and say, we'll discover it with science one day. But I believe, and, and, and because the Bible believes, there is a very vast spiritual reality. That the rulers and kingdoms we see here on earth are not all that there is. That there are supernatural evil puppet masters behind the scenes who have real power and real authority over the peoples of the world. This is what the biblical authors believed and whether you believe it or not, this is what Jesus is referring to, I believe. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that the power structure of the fallen spiritual beings is about to be shaken to the core. In the events, in and around the events he's describing, and in this season of time, this power structure is going to be shaken to the core. A seismic shift is about to happen. But what? What's going to happen? I think he describes it here in verse 26, and this is where it gets very contentious in theological circles. Feel free to disagree with me, but I'm going to tell you what I think. Verse 26. And then they, who is they? They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Who was he just talking about? Was he talking about people on earth? Who was he talking about? What's the context? The powers in heaven. Travis, I don't know if I like where you're going with this. Sorry. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he, the Son of Man, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. And as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So alas, so also, not alas, so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation that I'm talking to, the disciples, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, most people assume that this passage is referring to Jesus returning to the earth to rule at the end of time, and certainly he will. Jesus will return bodily, physically, in the clouds, to this earth, one day to set everything right. Can I get an amen? That's not what this passage is saying. There are other passages that say that. But in my view, and I want to say it with humility, I could be wrong. And if you ask me in two weeks, I might disagree with myself. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. When Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, in this passage, who is the they he was just talking about? He's referring to the beings he just mentioned, the powers, the fallen spiritual rulers in the spiritual realm. 
And also, Jesus is very clearly, unquestionably, referencing Daniel 7 here. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision, and Daniel says that he sees one like a son of man. Looks like a human. Ascending on a cloud to the throne of God. He's riding a cloud to the, up to the throne of God. And this son of man character is then given authority over all the demonic, beastly, spiritual powers who have been wreaking havoc on earth. And so if we read this in context of Daniel 7 that Jesus is very clearly linking to, this is not a picture of Jesus descending back down to earth. This is a picture of Jesus ascending up to the throne of God and unseating all the fallen spiritual beings from their places of power. And then having defanged and unpowered these evil beings and removing their authority, at least to some degree, over all the Gentile nations of the earth, Jesus now sends out his messengers into the earth to proclaim the gospel and call his chosen ones to faith in him. Now is the time of salvation. Why? Because Jesus removed the powers who were in charge. Jesus' ascension to heaven at the right hand of God inaugurates a new move of God on the earth. The age of the church where the servants of Jesus begin to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the globe. And Jesus says that the disciples' generation will see this happen. And the enthronement of Jesus in heaven at, the, at his ascension when he left this earth up in the clouds and went to the right hand of God would eventually be visibly seen on earth with the destruction of the temple. The temple system will be removed, Jesus is saying, because it's no longer needed. The animal sacrifices are no longer needed because a once-for-all sacrifice has been made. Why do you need a temple if you no longer need to slaughter animals for the sake of forgiveness. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. You don't need a temple anymore. A physical building in Jerusalem where heaven and earth were meant to overlap, the presence of God and people could come to a physical place and experience the presence of God. That's what the temple was about. But that's no longer needed because Jesus, the true and greater intersection of heaven and earth has now replaced it. We don't need a temple, we need Jesus. He is where God meets man. Not a place, not a building, not brick and mortar. A man, a God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is who we need, not a temple, not a building, not animal sacrifices. We need Jesus. This is one of the reasons I don't see these specific words of Jesus, these specific words of Jesus, others, yes, these, no, in verse 26 as referring to the very end times in his return to earth. It might be a type that he's setting up. It's like in the same way that I'm leaving earth in a cloud, I'm coming back that same way. In fact, Acts 1.11 says exactly that. Jesus is a cloud rider. He likes riding clouds. He, he, he left the earth that way. He's coming back that way. There are other passages in the Bible that describe Jesus' return in that exact same way. All of these things that Jesus predicts in this passage, persecution, 
the gospel going global, Jesus' ascension to the throne of heaven and the eventual, the eventual destruction of the temple, all of these things were actually witnessed by the disciples in their generation. And they were all proof of Jesus' enthronement over all of heaven and all of earth. Do you remember what he said on the final day in Matthew when he's about to ascend into heaven? Do you remember what he says before he says, go and make disciples? How does he start that sentence? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven did not only provide salvation to us. It did. Oh, that's a huge part of what it did. But it's not the only thing it did. It also broke the authority of the enemy so that the gospel message could go out into the world less hindered. Is the enemy going down fighting? That was a question you can answer. Is the enemy going down fighting? Oh, yes, he is. Yes, they are. But the degree of authority they once had has been broken, and the kingdom of God has been growing at a blazing pace ever since. Do you realize, do you realize that the, po the population of professing Christians living on earth today, 2.5 billion people profess to be Christians. Are they all true Christians? Probably not. But professing Christians, 2.5 billion, that number is over 10 times the entire population of the earth in the first century when Jesus was talking. 200 million people about lived on the earth when Jesus said these words. There are 2.5 billion people today that profess Christ as their Savior. You think that's an accident? Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and an ascension to the throne made that happen because all authority has been given to him and his gospel message can go out into the world and people will respond. That's the age we live in. That's the truth about your neighbors who don't know Jesus. Jesus has made it possible for you to speak the gospel to them and for their hearts to respond. The last 2,000 years has been a mind-boggling move of God on this earth. Why the change? Why the exponential growth of God followers in this chapter of history? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to power over all of heaven and earth literally changed everything. But now Jesus turns a corner and answers a question beyond what they've asked. Up to this point, in my opinion, he's been answering questions about the events leading up to and surrounding the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. He's been talking about it by saying these days or those days in the plural. But he turns a corner now. He starts talking about that day, singular, like there's something special about it. A day and time when a completely singular historic event and moment will happen. This is his way, I believe, of shifting the subject to a future day that all Jews would have known about and anticipated. It's called the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. The future time where God wraps up everything and finally brings this total, his total rule back to earth for good. And the end of all things will happen. In verses 3 through 31, just to be clear, what I'm saying is Jesus has 
been preparing his disciples for their future, what they will see happen, including his ascension to heaven on the clouds. And here in verse 32 is where Jesus starts preparing us for our future through the writing of Mark. Verse 32. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Keep on guard. Keep awake. Sorry, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. You do not know when the time will come. You do not know when the time will come. I'm sorry for being so forceful, but stop predicting the end of the world for the love of literally Jesus. I had to get that off my chest. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. There is a future day and time that is coming that only God the Father knows. The parable Jesus tells seems to pick up where he left off before. Where he left off was before was the Son of Man, Jesus, ascending into the clouds, going away on a trip. A man, Jesus, goes away on a long journey. That's his ascension to heaven. And he hasn't returned yet. He's at the right hand of God. And in his absence, he's left his servants in charge, and they all have work to do. We all have work to do. And his command to all of them is to be alert, stay awake, and keep at your work, and be ready for his return. We know that from what Jesus says here in Mark and the other Gospels and Paul's writings, the book of Revelation and a whole heap of passages in the Old Testament, that there will be a day when the great king of heaven finally comes back down to earth on the clouds. Acts 1.11. He's going to come back the way he went away, just like he ascended up into heaven. But our job is not to busy ourselves with trying to figure out when exactly that will be. Church, that's not our job. That's God the Father's job. Why busy yourself figuring out something that we can't possibly know and Jesus told us we'd? Are we just telling Jesus he's wrong? Jesus, you said we wouldn't know when it's going to be, but I think I know better. <laughs> Lord, have mercy on us all. Jesus' intent for all of this prophetic teaching was not that we would all become end times theorists. His intent is that we would become lifelong loyal disciples. That's Jesus' intent for telling us about all this. Look at how he starts his whole answer to the disciples' questions. He doesn't answer their question first, and throughout it all, he peppers it with these commands to all of his disciples. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. And then after this, he, he, uh, though he's giving us a lot of cryptic answers for all the prophetic stuff, he gives us some very clear directions 
Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11, do not be anxious. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 21, concerning false messiahs, do not believe it. Don't believe them. Verse 23, once again, be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. Ah! That's the point of the passage. That's what we are called to. I want to invite the band to come on up right now because we're going to worship our king. Humanity's journey to the finale of history will be a childbirth-like, ever-intensifying, ever-increasing tempo of repeated events leading to the end. I think that's what Jesus is saying. We do not and cannot know how long this will last. That I know, Jesus said. But what we can know is who we are called to be no matter what place in the journey we find ourselves. God is calling us to be loyal, faith-filled, love-saturated, surrendered, watchful, enduring, courageous servants of our King, Jesus. This applies to me whether Jesus returns in three minutes or 3,000 years. The question is, is this currently who you are? A loyal, lay down your life, take up your cross, surrendered to Jesus' disciple who is walking in alertness and a spirit-led intensity for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. Is that currently who you are? Or when I say that, does it make you feel a little uncomfortable? We in America have this weird, lazy tendency to think, well, when things start getting serious, then I'll get serious. I'll have time. But here's the reality. You can't begin training for a marathon the day before, can you? That would be unwise. And you can't become the strong, courageous, loyal disciple you'll need to be if your answer is always tomorrow, 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 next week. And there's something even more pressing, maybe for some in this room or some watching online. If you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, I implore you to do so today. Because in every one of our lives, there will be that day. when tomorrow will be too late. None of us know when our today will be that day. We don't. We don't. We all think we're going to live to 80, 85, 90. It's not true. It's not true. You don't know when today will be that day. So please, please, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, if you haven't yet asked him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, do it today. Because please don't miss the amazing reality of all of this. I said in the beginning, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the world for the forest. There's maybe even a bigger point here. 
that Jesus came to earth and will return to this earth because he loves humanity. He loves you. You need him and he wants to save you. There has, is no one in the history of this earth who has done more for you and loved you more than Jesus Christ. And you can surrender to him today. And if that's where you are, whether you're at home or you're here in this room, I'm gonna pray a prayer and I would want you to pray it sincerely from the depth of your heart to Jesus and ask him to enter into your life today. For those of you who already know Jesus, would you pray right now? Would you pray with me? Would you pray and ask God to move right now? So if you want to give your life to Jesus today, please pray after me. Father in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have done things and rebelled against you and I am in need of saving. Jesus, you came to this world. You lived, you died on a cross, and I believe that you did that to save me and then you rose again so that I could have everlasting life. I invite you to be the savior and king of my heart. Nothing that I do can save myself. Jesus, only what you did on the cross. Thank you for loving me like no one on this earth ever has and no one on this earth ever will. I entrust my life to you and I thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.